Today's message is going to be in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to look at the final few phrases, verses 13 through 21. 1 John 5, 13 through 21. I'll read it, and then we'll get started. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and that we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Amen. There's a story in the Bible about a rich young ruler who meets Jesus. You may know it or have heard it before. As the story goes, this rich young man meets Jesus, And he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps not the best question to ask the God of the universe by referring to him as good teacher, but Jesus plays along. He says, one, you have to keep the law. And he says, well, I've been doing that since I was a boy. And then he says, okay, well, I'll continue to reason with you. And he says, second, give all you have to the poor and then come and follow me. And the man goes away sad because you can see here at the end of verse 22, it says he had great possessions. Great possessions. I think sometimes the things that we're thankful for reveal what might really be in our hearts. This week, a lot of us gathered around a table and shared a meal with those close to us. And at some point, whether you're a Christian or not, you probably took time to reflect on what you were thankful for. And typically, when the uh, thankfulness uh, question goes around, people say things like, my family, my job, my health, my education, my friends, my house, my country. I was in an environment yesterday where there there was a big board where people who were were writing what they were thankful for. And someone, I won't say who, the person is in this room. And I agree with this, and I'm grateful for it as well. Someone wrote on the board, dogs. And I said, amen. I'm thankful for dogs, too. Dogs are great. None of these are bad things. Dogs are great. I love dogs. Amen. But when we think about these things, whether it's our possessions, our jobs, our family, our country, it begs the question that if you were this rich young ruler standing in the presence of Jesus who has these quote-unquote great possessions and this righteousness, what I'm gripped with when I read that story and I think about the times that we sit around and reflect on what we're thankful for, 
and think about the fact that this man was in front of Jesus and didn't recognize who he was because he couldn't get past his great possessions, to me it begs the question, what does Jesus have to offer this man that is so much greater than his possessions? If the point of the story is the man lost something by holding on to what he has, then Jesus must have something far greater to offer. And that far greater to offer thing that he has certainly has to be beyond just saying, well, grit your teeth, you'll live this life, and then when you die, you'll be able to go to some sort of heaven. I think Jesus does have something greater than that. And if the rich young ruler could read 1 John, which we've been going through for the last month or so, he would be reminded over and over again that Christians have this thing called eternal life. We have eternal life in Jesus. Not just eternal life like we die and then we go to heaven and float on clouds. We have eternal life that affects how we live here and now. And that eternal life starts the moment we follow Jesus. I think eternal life in itself is something to be thankful for. So much so that I want to spend some time today in this passage just drawing out the implications of that phrase and what John is making his point about that phrase, what we can be thankful for about the phrase eternal life and the eternal life that Jesus gives us. So that when we have time and perhaps next year when we gather around the table for Thanksgiving and we start sharing about things that we're thankful for, we'll remember our possessions, we'll remember our family, we'll remember our relationship, but we'll also remember the eternal life that we have in him. Because what is true of all of us is that some of us may have great possessions. This may have been a great year for you. Some of us may feel like we don't have great possessions and there's not much to be thankful for about our life from a material standpoint. But the thing is, is that if you're in Christ, you have something to be thankful for. And not just one thing, there are many things that will draw from implication from this passage. The first one I want to start with is basic, but like all basic things, bears repeating because we can forget how rich the concept is. The first thing I would submit to us that we should all be thankful for is that you and everyone else are made in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, so God made mankind in his image. The idea here is that people in and of themselves, because they were created by God, have unique value, dignity, and worth that reflects God's goodness. If you read Psalm chapter eight, it says he made us a little lower than the angels, unique from all other creatures. God made mankind. This idea is also unique to other, the Christian faith from other worldviews. If you study other religions or just study other traditions, sometimes our worth is determined by our sex, our family, our birth order, the color of our skin. But the image of God assumes that you are worthy just by existing. So when John in 1 John gets to verse 13 and says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may have eternal life, believing in the name of the Son of God is a critical step to receiving eternal life, but there's something that we can't leave out here. Before we believe in the name of the Son of God, we cannot leave out the image that the Father stamps on everyone who is called to believe. So for some people, this verse 13 sort of falls flat, like talking about having eternal life, because they would think, well, I feel hopeless. I feel worthless. My life isn't worth living, so if it's not worth living now, 
Why would I worship someone who can give me eternal life? And if you respond to that person with, well, you should repent from your sin and turn to Jesus, you might not be wrong, but you might be missing the point. Not everyone assumes their life is worth living. Not everyone assumes that they want eternal life. And if that's you, here's where I'd start. Genesis 127. The message of the Bible says that you are unequivocally, no matter how much money you make, no matter how talented you are, no matter your sex, no matter your family, no matter your whatever, you are valuable. You matter. And your life matters to God. The reason I can say that flat-footed, unequivocally, is because of Genesis 127. The reason we should be thankful for Genesis 127 is that there are no conditions for it. The image of God is received, not achieved, which means your worth is received and not achieved. Before anything you accomplish, you matter. That's something we can all be thankful for. So thing number one, you and everyone else, even those people you don't like, even those people who don't like dogs, you and everyone else are made in God's image. Number two, from this passage, eternal life means, and we can be thankful for eternal life, because the Lord is our shepherd. So not only did God create you in his image, he will also lead you lovingly like a shepherd would lead a sheep. Psalm 23 uh, is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's a description of what eternal life in Jesus looks like. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely the goodness and mercy of the Lord shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is our shepherd. Eternal life means in Jesus that the Lord is our shepherd. He is our leader. He makes us lie down. He leads us. Eternal life in Jesus does not mean the Lord is our consultant. It does not mean that the Lord is just a good teacher or the Lord is a genie. Eternal life means that the Lord is our shepherd. And if the Lord is our shepherd, and he is our leader, and his will is better than ours, and has a divine authority to it that has our best in mind, that we would become like Jesus, with that lens, you can then make sense of verse 14 and 15, where it says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that the request that we have, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. So two things are happening here. One, you can ask. You can ask anything, according to James, right? You have not because what? You ask not. You have not because you ask not. So ask the Lord. Ask the Lord for the things that you want. But the Lord being our shepherd means that he listens to us and he hears us, but there is a splitting or a difference between the Lord being our shepherd and the Lord being our genie which gets into the second part of verse 14 and 15, because we ask, we have what we ask, if we ask according to what? According to his will. So the Lord being our shepherd means that we trust his will, ultimately, 
and not ours. The Lord being our shepherd means that even if we think we know what's best for us, we align and we agree with Jesus when he was about to be crucified, saying, Lord, if there's another way, let this cup of suffering pass. So Jesus asked. It's okay to ask. It's okay to ask the Lord for your cup of hardship or trial or suffering or sickness to pass. But in the end, just like Jesus, we say, according to your will, or let your will be done and not mine. And that then is how you make sense at the end of 15. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. The we here are those who have eternal life in Jesus. And eternal life in Jesus is just like we saw in Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. And because of that, we lack nothing. Regardless of our circumstance, the Lord is our shepherd. Regardless of whether we get what we want when we ask him or not, we still have him as our shepherd. Thus, those who have eternal life in Jesus can agree with the psalmist and say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil so that my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So notice the Lord does not take away the enemies of the psalmist, but he prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies. So the hardships, the difficult things in life that we may ask the Lord to take away, they don't always go away, but the Lord shepherds us through them. So if you're a believer, you can be thankful that the Lord is your shepherd. You can ask him what is on your heart, what you want from him, and know that one day the good shepherd will be with you personally forever. A great example of this is he, the example of the Lord shepherding, I think is his final moments before he's about to be crucified when he's with Peter. Before Jesus is about to be crucified, Peter makes a statement about desiring to go to the cross and follow Jesus even unto death. And this is how the conversation goes. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So this is before Jesus is about to be crucified. Peter essentially makes his will known. He states a request saying, I want to follow you to jail and even unto death. So we have two wills or two ideas at work here. Peter's and then Jesus, where Jesus says, no, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And this is where asking according to the Lord's will comes in. Because the Lord's will was that Peter would deny Jesus and that Jesus would suffer alone. And that Peter would also realize that he needs more than just his pure and raw ambition to follow Jesus. He would need the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which he had not received ultimately yet. But I like the way that Jesus shepherds Peter through this moment of divergent wills. Peter wants to go with him to prison and to death, and Jesus is actually saying, you're going to do the exact opposite of that. But in that moment, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, that your faith might not fail, and when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you. Can you imagine that for a second? If you're Peter, you've been following this Jesus. He's been working miracles. He's been perhaps slowly revealing to you that he is indeed the Messiah, and he tells you directly, 
I have prayed for you. Jesus' prayer that Peter's faith wouldn't fall is ultimately what Peter should have been praying for himself. But in that moment, Jesus was masterfully shepherding Peter. And here's the great thing about the Lord being our shepherd. After Peter denied Jesus, Jesus was crucified, he resurrected, he ascended, he has all power. Guess what Jesus is doing now? Hint, he's at the right hand of the Father doing it. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, and is at the right hand of God, and he said it, interceding for us. Do you know what that means? He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. That word can also be translated praying for us. Just like Peter, in a difficult moment, needed a shepherd to help him understand what was about to happen that was against his will that he had asked the Lord for, Jesus prays for Peter what Peter should have prayed for himself. Jesus, in his resurrected power, is praying for all of us what we should pray for ourselves. Romans 8 elaborates on that far more. It's not just Jesus, but it's a Trinitarian where the Spirit is, is with him as well. And so we are caught up in the Trinitarian love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But don't lose the fact that Jesus, right now, is praying for you. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that consolation that he gives Peter when they're in this difficult moment. That could also be translated, but I have prayed for you, Eddie. I have prayed for you, Dylan. I have prayed for you, Diana. I have prayed for you, Crystal. I have prayed for you, Jonathan. Imagine that phrase at the end of every disappointment that you feel in life, every disappointment that you experience, everything that didn't work out the way you wanted it to, and perhaps even things that you asked God for, the job that you prayed for that didn't work out, the health of the relative that didn't pull through, the conflict, the suffering that you experience in life. Jesus being our shepherd means that at the end of every disappointment is the punctuation of Jesus saying, I have prayed for you. And I am interceding and helping you through things that perhaps you don't understand now, just like Peter didn't understand why he had to deny the Lord three times. But in the end, it made sense. I have prayed for you. He's present. He's present in the hardness of life. The one thing every believer can say is that the good shepherd has not left them. And not only that, he's present with you, interceding, advocating, and praying for you. Think of that when things get hard in life. The Jesus that you read about in Scripture, the Jesus who does the miracles, who says the profound sayings, who rises from the grave with eternal power, that Jesus is praying for you right now. That's something to be thankful for. Eternal life is something to be thankful for because God created us in his image, because the Lord is our shepherd. And we can also be thankful that in addition to the Lord being our shepherd, here and now the Lord shepherds us through the community of his body, the local church. So the Lord certainly is our shepherd in the sense that he's at the right hand of the Father with the Spirit, praying and making intercession for us. But one of the profound ways in the here and now that the shepherd works through his people is through the church. So much so that when you read about church leaders, they're referred to as under-shepherds, just like Jesus is the chief shepherd. And the under-shepherds will give an account to the chief shepherd for how they treated the sheep and, and whether or not they were faithful to their responsibility. First Peter 5, whoop, did I leave it out? I sure did. 
There it is. Thank you. First Peter 5 says it like this. To the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So the idea that it's just, the Lord is my shepherd and that's it, like I don't interact with anybody else, is contrary to the reality that scripture sets up, that there are under shepherds, there are people whom you are with in local community, who the chief shepherd works through to continue to shepherd you in this life. So to experience the good shepherding of the Lord, you must be submitted to or connected to a local body of believers where you can be shepherded. And what that looks like is what you read in verses 16 through 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, this is talking about praying for our brothers and sisters when we see them in sin. And I just want to initially, before I jump, in, jump into the applications here, talk about some, some guardrails for who exactly the people we should pray for applies to. First, it says, if anyone sees a brother in sin, brother meaning like a fellow believer in Christ. So this person, one, is a believer. Second, it's someone that you see with your own eyes. It's not a rumor you heard or something that you read about on the internet. It is a brother who you know or a sister in a local community who you observe committing a sin. So the guardrails here are for Christians that we know personally and are able to see that they're doing some type of sin. This prevents us, first, from policing the world's sin. Sinners who don't know Jesus will sin. And to watch them sin and just pray, well, I hope that they stop doing that, again, is not wrong, but perhaps misses the point. Because if you read in verse 18, it's those who've been born of God who are able to stop sinning. So to only pray for non-believers to stop sinning is to wish them a moral life without Jesus, which is a miserable life, ultimately. That's what the rich young ruler had. The second thing that we're prevented from is this kind of watchdog Christianity where everyone who has the name Christian or identifies as a Christian is now someone who we must address everything that they do. So every Christian celebrity is not our responsibility. Every celebrity who calls himself a Christian is not our responsibility. That's why Chris and Eddie and Pete and myself don't get up here every week and talk about the latest person who says they're a Christian who did something goofy, because ultimately, they're not a responsibility. They're not a brother or a sister who we observe committing sin. And that doesn't mean we don't speak to things that may have said or said or done that influence people, but we don't have a responsibility to police the entire body of Christ globally. Because the way the Lord shepherds us is through a local body of people who you know, who you interact with, who you can express care for. So with those guardrails in mind, let's now jump back to what it says. It says the first thing we should do when we see a brother or a sister who we think is in sin is we should pray. Don't gossip. Don't go to social media. Don't grumble. Pray that God delivers them. Because sin is dangerous. 
The wages of sin is indeed death, so much so that John tells his readers there's a point to which people can sin and where that sin leads them into death. He's saying, don't pray for that kind of sin or don't pray for that kind of consequence, but pray that God in his mercy allows them to sin, but not sin to the point of death. This is a, a, a perhaps sobering reality that you do see in scripture where God allows people, even who call themselves believers, to sin and sin in ways that are so rebellious or offensive to God that he kills them. If you read about Uzzah in the Old Testament, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, in the Corinthian church, there are people who are disrespecting the Lord's table, and there's this, a lot of theological underpinning that could go on this, but verse 30, that is why many of you are ill and some have died. So there is a reality in which sin, because of its seriousness, can lead us to death. And it is the mercy of God that when any of us commits a sin, we're not struck dead in the moment because the wages of sin is death and God in his mercy is allowing us to experience life. But God will not always let people mock him and continue in their sin. I have a a good friend who um, works in a Christian rehab center and he said he would see this from time to time. There would be people who would come to the rehab center And they would be, for sometimes months, years, decades even, be walking with Jesus, and they would relapse. And sometimes that relapse meant overdosing and death, because sin is serious, and we should take it seriously. And then there's the reality on top of that, that anybody who dies in rebellion against Jesus, apart from Christ, will experience a spiritual death in which we are cut off from the eternal life that is offered to us in Christ and will have no hope of experiencing eternal life with Jesus. This is why to pray for non-believers just to stop sinning misses the point. Because the only thing to keep any of us from sinning ourselves to death is new birth in Christ. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So what we can be thankful for is not just the power to stop sinning, but it's also protection from God against the evil one. That phrase, the evil one, does not touch him. The evil one, referred to in this passage, could be an umbrella term for Satan and also the demonic realm that is under Satan. Satan and demons are real. They do torment and get interfere and get interact with people in the here and now. And I know that's not always uh, at the top of our minds from a modern perspective because we believe in sort of a material world, only what we can see and touch and interact with, but it is very common in the Bible. If you read, for example, Jesus, he has an interaction with a man who is possessed by a demon. This is in the book of Luke, chapter 8. Jesus asked this man, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So notice, not to depart in the abyss. That's the the other world. If they're not in the abyss, where are they now? They're here. Demons, the demonic realm, is a real reality. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside, and they uh, they begged him to enter these, so he gave them their permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So again, they're still here. The demons that he cast out went to another place to be possessed by, and they are still in this world. But notice that the demons immediately, when they see Jesus, submit to his authority. They must submit to his power, and they have to obey what he says. 
But the response to that is one I certainly can relate to because the man who was possessed by the demons is now the beneficiary of not being tormented by them anymore. It says in verse 38, the man whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I would say, again, if I were in that situation, I would be doing the same. Like, hey, please stay with me longer. Prevent these demons from coming back and from tormenting me. And the good news is that for believers today, Jesus is with us by his spirit. And it is through the power of his spirit, that same spirit that Jesus did miracles by, that believers are protected from demonic activity. So to be in Christ is to receive what this demon-possessed man wanted, that the power of God would be with him forever to protect him from the demonic evil that is out there. And like I said, if you're in Christ, that's exactly what he does through the spirit who lives in all of us. John said this actually earlier in 1 John 4, 4. You are from God and have overcome them, for it is he who is in you who is greater than he who is in the world. And that is something we can be thankful for. Because as John goes on to say in chapter 5, the whole world is under the influence of Satan and the demonic. Picking up at verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idol. So the whole world right now lies under the authority of the evil one, of Satan, because Jesus is temporarily allowing evil to not be fully restrained. And the reason that God is doing that is not some cruel experiment just to watch people be tormented, but it's so that we can all come to understand the evil that exists within all of us, in turn, in faith, to Jesus, who is the eternal God whom we should be thankful for because he gives us eternal life. John ends this book by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, when I say idols, you might get the idea in your head of something clearly masquerading itself as a, as a god and something that someone would physically bow down and worship. So a statue of a Buddha or a statue of some other god and people are bowing down to it and literally devoting their lives to it as a god, worshiping it. And that is one example, right? Other religions, other spiritualities, mythological figures, those exist. But idols can also be subtle. I wanna go back to that example we talked about up front of the rich young ruler. He has Jesus right in front of him, but he can't follow him because he can't detach himself from his own righteousness and his great possessions. So his idol was not another God. It was making the things of this world that God had provided a God, a small g God in and of themselves. So much so that when he saw the God who has eternal life, the one who created all of us in his image, the one who is the good shepherd, the one who leads us faithfully through his church, the one who protects us from the evil and the demonic realm, the rich young ruler sees and is face to face with that God and says, you know, I'll hold on to my stuff. I'm sure if we could find it or track it today, we'd have to find it because all of his stuff has probably fossilized and withered away. It is dust and has returned to dust. 
Now compare the reaction of the rich young ruler to the man who was possessed by a demon, whom Jesus delivers from his demonic possession. And he begs Jesus, I'll follow you. I'm not even asking. I'll, I'll follow you. Just let me, let me go. Please be with me. Both of them see the same God, but they have different reactions. One saw a good teacher with some good parables and some good advice, and another saw the Lord of the universe who has authority and who delivered him from the demonic realm. As we take communion, I want us to reflect on what we're thankful for. And I want to remind us to be thankful for the stuff that God gives us, certainly. But I also want to learn a lesson, and I think we can all learn a lesson from a man who used to be possessed by demons. It's good to be thankful for what God gives us, but it's also good to be thankful for who God is, that he made us in his image, that he is our shepherd, that he separates us through a local body of believers, and that it is he who protects us from the evil one. And these things are true for all believers at all times. If next year is the worst year of your life and you burn the turkey on Thanksgiving, you have no leftovers, and you show up to church on Sunday, guess what's going to be true? You're made in the image of God. The Lord is your shepherd. The Lord will shepherd you through a local body, and the Lord will protect you from the demonic activity of the evil one. If you have the best year of your life next year, you become a millionaire, the turkey is perfectly seared at 165 degrees, the, the sides were amazing, and you show up here on Sunday, guess what's going to be true? You are made in the image of God. The Lord is your shepherd. He is shepherding you through a local body of believers, and he is the one who protects you from demonic activity. So all believers at all times have something to be thankful for, and that is the eternal life that we have in Christ. So we're going to take communion. We're going to sing a song to remember what it is and who it is that we worship, and then we'll pray. So let me pray, and then the worship band is going to come up, and we'll take communion after we sing a song.